before we go to God's word and just to meditate on it, let's take a moment, let's pray for the spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts. Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll get to the scriptures in just a little bit, but let us remind ourselves of the good news. Christ has risen. Yes, Easter has come, but Easter is not over. According to the church calendar, today is, is the second Sunday of Easter. And the church calendar will continue to count Sundays in Easter until it gets to the seventh. And then on the eighth Sunday here is actually Pentecost, the day in which we, the church celebrates the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples in the upper room. After Pentecost, we enter into the longest period in the church calendar, and it's one of my favorites, uh, and it's simply known as ordinary time, uh, because uh, this is where we find much of our lives. Much of our lives are ordinary. Much of our lives are filled with the mundane, and that is wonderful, and it is good, and it's something special that the church calendar even recognizes that. And so from the Sunday after Pentecost, which is seven Sundays from now, uh, is ordinary time all the way until the first Sunday in Advent. And so as we talked about last week, Easter, uh, Easter is the time in which we remember and celebrate and hope and find joy in the fact that new creation has come into our midst. The resurrection of Jesus means that, that something both new has happened and is happening. Death has been defeated. Christ has gone to the grave and has come back from the grave. Death is no longer something to be feared, but rather death is something that has been overcome. The Apostles' Creed actually takes it a step further and says, not only does Jesus descend to the grave, but it says in the Creed, and, and most often how we say it nowadays, is that he descended into hell. Now, that piece right there that descended into hell has a whole lot of controversy around it because people are like, well, show me where it says that in the Bible. And you're like, kind of difficult because there's a couple places maybe and then there's a couple places no and there's a whole bunch of conversation around there and in fact uh, the earliest versions of the creed don't even have that phrase he descended into hell into in it and so there's a whole lot of speculation and so the question is, is why why do we have this idea that Jesus descended into hell there and I find actually the Heidelberg Catechism which is one of our denominations uh, central creeds that the Heidelberg Catechism is helpful there and so on question 44, it asks the question, why does the creed add, he descended into hell? And the catechism answers, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. In other words, on the cross, and even before in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is under such pressure that he is he's praying and he's sweating blood, even in that time he's feeling so much torment, physical and emotional, 
That it is if he is experiencing hell itself, hell on earth, and Jesus rises from that and thereby delivers us from that. And so we, we are not left to despair, we are not left to fear, no matter what our circumstances are, because Jesus has gone there and has come back. Resurrection means that new reality is in our midst. We have new order a new way of doing things, a new way of understanding the world, and yes, even a new hope. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus speaks of this to his disciples, and he tells them what they can expect. And Jesus says that, when I, uh, when I return, there will be a time of renewal. Now, the Greek word here for time of renewal, or for the word renewal, is this word, palingenesia. It's made up of two words, two Greek words, compound word. The first one is paling. The second word is Genesia. So the first word, paling, means again. And the second word, Genesia, I mean, you can probably figure out what that means. Like Genesis, beginning. Right? So it's literally beginning again, or again, beginning. Jesus says, like, when I come back, there's going to be time, a time of beginning again. Something new is going to come. Something new is going to break out. This all started with a resurrection. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Here and Now, which was a formative book for me as I began to think about my time of renewal and sabbatical, Henry Nouwen, he starts the very first lines of his book, say this, we must learn to live each day, each hour, yes, each minute, as a new beginning, as a unique opportunity to make everything new. To me, as Nowen describes paying attention and, and working, or at least being attentive to the idea that each day, each hour, and even each minute is a new beginning, it echoes the words of Jesus when he says, there's going to be a beginning again when I return. There's going to be a time of renewal. For me, this describes resurrection living. Right? Resurrection living is is aligning ourselves with the new order of things that has come about because the tomb is empty. Resurrection living is to look for, for new life that will rise from the ashes of all that is burned down. Resurrection living is to expect that new thing to be built on top of the ruins of the old thing. Resurrection living is the hope that springs forth from death. And as a people who hope in and are defined by resurrection, we ought to be attentive to these new things that are coming alive and being birthed and taking root among us in order not only to see it and to celebrate it, but to join with this new thing that God is doing. And so that's what this summer is all about. This summer, this time of renewal, is all about being attentive to the new thing that God is doing each each day, each hour, and yes, even each minute. And so for the next three weeks, I'm actually just going to preach on the idea of renewal, and we're going to talk about renewal 
uh, in, in different aspects, not necessarily of our lives. I mean, it's, yes, it, it, it is our lives, uh, but more the practical things. That's what's going to get worked out over the course of the summer with David Bell and the stuff that he's talking about and other speakers and the workshops. What I want to do is kind of take this high-level view. And so today we're going to talk about the renewal of peace. Originally, I was going to talk about faith, but sometimes what happens when you begin to interact with the Scriptures and write a sermon, it, it takes a left-hand turn on you. And so I was going to talk about faith, but now we're going to talk about the renewal of peace next year. Next week, we're going to look at, unless the same thing happens, we're going to talk about the renewal of understanding, and then we're going to go into the renewal of belonging. So we're going to talk about this for the next three weeks, just to kind of prepare our hearts and our minds to be attentive to this new thing that God is doing in light of the resurrection. And so today, we'll start with that. And, and actually, what's, we're going to do it from John. Uh, today's scripture reading is actually the le- from the lectionary. And so if you know what the lectionary is, it's, it's a three-year uh, cycle in which there is an Old Testament reading, a psalm reading, and a, a gospel reading, and an epistle reading. And if you would go through these things uh, over the course of three years, you'd go through most of the Bible. Not quite all of it, but you'd go through most of the Bible. And so for the next three weeks, I'm going to use the lectionary as the point of launching off as we interact with God's scripture. So today... The reading from John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the middle of this section of scripture, we have one of the most important confessions that an individual can make. Thomas gives voice to it after he touches the scars on Jesus' hands, the holes on his hands, and puts his hand in Jesus' side, and he says, My Lord and my God. It's a statement in which Thomas recognizes that Jesus is more than just a more than just a, a, a political leader, more than just a, a, even an earthly Messiah, but that Jesus is something much more. Jesus is God. He combines 
this idea that the Messiah is, is the messenger of God, the one who is sent to redeem God's people and to, to establish the kingdom of God. Like, there's that. But Thomas takes and combines, my Lord and my God, they are one and the same. And so this is the central confession for, for a people of faith that we would recognize, as Thomas did, that Jesus is, in fact, our Lord and our God. And when we think about not only making that confession for ourselves, but making it for others, I mean, this is what evangelism is all about, right? Evangelism is the hope, is the work of, help, of, of helping lead people to the place where they, like Thomas, are making that same confession for themselves. Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is what we hope for. This is what we pray for. This is, this is why we study scriptures and, and, and all of that, is to see people make that confession. And in order to do that, oftentimes we feel like we need to make a case for faith, right? A case for Christianity, a case for why this Jesus of Nazareth and this, this claim about the resurrection is in fact true. When I was younger, and when I say younger, I mean like high school age, I, I fell in love with the idea of apologetics. I think part of it has to do with my competitive nature, right? I like to win conversations uh, that was a generous term. I mean, usually like debates, like it's not much of a conversation because I'm in it to win it, right? This is, this is much how I feel. And apologetics was a way in which I could do that. Like if I came up with or at least memorized these logical points of argument, then I could go into a situation with someone and convince them that Jesus was real, quote unquote, really convince them that I was right. Right? Like, so there's all these ultimate motives. But that's, that's, and I, so I loved it and I studied it. You know, A Case for Christ came out about that time, A Case for Faith. I, I absorbed these books because this evidence-based rationality for Christianity was so appealing for me. What I've also noticed over the course of years of preaching and listening to sermons and just examining Christian culture and churches is that a lot of Easter sermons actually are founded upon this idea of making an evidence-based rational case for the idea that the resurrection did in fact happen. We lay out these wonderful arguments in dramatic fashion in order to convince people because, hey, pastors, we know what happens on Easter, right? We know it's one of two times, two Sundays a year that we're likely going to get somebody, that we can count on somebody in the pews who maybe has a loose understanding of Christianity or is just checking it out. And so we develop these sermons with these well-laid out arguments in hope, hopes that we can convince someone that the eyewitness accounts recorded in the Gospels are trustworthy and that they would come to the same conclusion as Thomas, my Lord and my God. I'll be honest with you, though. I'm not as interested in that as I used to be. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm still very much interested in seeing and hearing people make that confession, my Lord and my God. But making the case an evidence-based, rational, logic-filled argument for Christianity. Like, I mean, I think it's important. I think there's a place for it, but I'm just not as interested in it anymore. And, and here's why. I'm not sure it works all that well, particularly at this moment in history. I think there was a time in which it worked really well, but I think things have changed. I think what we can see, and if we're being honest with ourselves, what we have to admit about our culture and society and where we are, 
is that people don't change their, mi- change their minds on something they believe with logic and evidence. We can look at multiple things within our culture right now, right? We could look at, we could look at the case for global climate change, right? And people on one side, well, you have all their evidence and all their science, and they will say that it is an absolute fact. And there's people on the other side that have all their evidence and all their science and say that it's, it's not fact, and the two compete with each other. And I'm not sure that the, the, the evidence ever pulls somebody from one side to the other side. And we just don't live that way because we're so suspect of evidence. We're so suspect of someone's position and their perspective and the the rationale for why they're arguing what they're doing. There's always an ulterior motive, right? I mean, if I can be really contentious for a moment, you know, because I've never done that before. In the last few weeks, we've had the Mueller report come out. And we can't even get people to agree about what's fact and what's not fact and what matters and what doesn't matter. And I don't think that it coming out is actually changing minds because I'm not sure that people change their minds based on evidence or lack of evidence or whatever it might be, right? We just, we don't, we don't work that way anymore. In fact, if anything, what we see from these types of arguments is that people get further entrenched into their already held positions, And so somebody who's coming in on a Sunday morning to a church who is suspect of the resurrection, maybe they got dragged to church, maybe somebody tricked them, maybe they heard about Brad's awesome coffee and so they show up on a Sunday morning, but they don't really believe it. They're already suspect of Christians and everything like that. Like the best laid out 30-minute argument for why you should believe the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection isn't going to sway them. I'm becoming more convinced, and you don't have to be, but this is just where I am. I'm becoming more convinced that these types of arguments aren't... Like, I'm, I'm becoming convinced that we don't need better arguments to convince people about the truth and the hope of the resurrection. I'm becoming convinced we need better living. The most convincing argument is not the logic the most convincing argument is the fruit. Do I see that your claims about the resurrection actually impact your life? Do I see that you live differently? That you treat people differently? That you approach conflict differently? Do I see that you approach suffering and pain and confusion and doubting differently? And I think that the the story that we read this morning about the disciples up in the, up, in the upper room, they, they actually give us a portrait or at least an invitation to something that's very attractive. Something that if we could live into this, would, if, if we could take these concepts and, and, and adopt them, embrace them, live into it, that would actually be something where per, people would say, like, the logic doesn't matter. Like, I want that. That's all the proof I need. So when the disciples are in the upper room, they're hiding, right? The doors are locked out of fear. They have just seen their leader, Jesus, tortured and crucified. The natural fear that they would have is that what happened to Jesus is coming for them. So they go into the upper room, they lock the door behind them, and they hide out. And despite the doors being locked, Jesus shows up in their midst and says, 
Peace be with you. Now he shows them his hands, shows them the side. And then interestingly enough, he says it again. Peace be with you. I have no idea why Jesus repeated himself there. Maybe the disciples are freaking out that Jesus suddenly showed up in their midst and he just wants them to calm down. It's like, chill, chill out, bro. Chill out. Peace. Right? I don't know. But Jesus says it twice. Peace be with you. And then he gives them a charge, just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So here stands the Prince of Peace, Jesus, who, who earlier in John said, I, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. And then shortly after that, in another portion of John, he says, I have told you that you are going to face trouble in the world so that you might have peace. Like peace is something that Jesus has been pronouncing over and over and over again and preparing his disciples. And that last one is fascinating when he says, I'm telling you this because you will face trouble in this world. Have peace. The idea is is that the peace that Jesus talks about is not a conflict, uh, absent peace. It's it's not a peace where there is no difficulty, where there is no strife, where there's no anguish, where there's no confusion. It's not that kind of peace. But rather, the peace that Jesus is talking about is a peace that comes from living the kind of resurrection life that Jesus himself lived even before he was resurrected, a life that is given to wholeness and healing and restoration and reconciliation. This is what the Son was sent to do. The Father sent the Son to bring wholeness to people, to bring forgiveness to people, to bring reconciliation to people, to bring restoration. This is what the Son was sent to do, and just as the Father has sent the Son, so the Son sends us. Peace be with you. I'm reading a book right now by an Irish theologian and poet. It's called In the Shelter. His name is Padraig O'Tuma. Just awesome. I love it. It looks like Tuama, but it's not. It's Tuma. You don't care right now. Anyways, he's got, he's got this little uh, passage in here that I want to read from. And he's actually, he bases the whole book uh, on this story of Jesus appearing to the disciples in the upper room and them saying, peace be with you. And he's got this really interesting take on it. So I'm going to read this section, and then and it's kind of short, but then I'm just going to expound on it all for the rest of the morning. The Tays brother suggested that we pause for a moment and consider the words, peace be with you, that the resurrected Jesus says to his locked-in followers. The Tays brother said that, in a real sense, we can read that greeting as Hello. After all, it's the standard greeting in Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramaic. He smiled and asked us to say hello in our own language. There were many languages in the room. Then we approached the text again. The disciples were there, in fear, in an upper room, locked away. And suddenly, the one they had abandoned, and perhaps the one they feared most to be with them, was with them. And he said, hello, hello to you in this locked room. I love that idea of Jesus when he says, peace be with you. He's simply saying hello. And he's inviting the disciples to live like he lives. And so what Otuma does for the rest of 
the book is he builds on this idea of saying hello to what's right in front of us. He asks, after this, he's got a short, short section in which he asks some questions about faith and prayer. And then he, he ends that section by simply saying hello to what we do not know. He tells about the difficulty of being present to whatever it is that we're facing in life, whether it be pain or whether it be joy. And then he simply ends by saying, hello to here. He starts talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and wonders if the miracle is the supernatural multiplication. Like there was, you know, it was just this little bit of food and it gets multiplied all the way out. Or maybe, maybe the miracle is actually that the spirit of generosity gripped the people who usually don't share what they have and suddenly we found that there was enough for everyone and our fears of scarcity are unfounded. He says, hello to the greater generosity. On and on the chapter goes, saying hello to these different things. Hello to the storm that the disciples found themselves in. Hello to the dark storm. Hello to the power of names. Hello to the name of here. So I'm reading this book and I'm reflecting on this particular passage and I can't, I can't help but wonder if this isn't in fact what peace is. Right? Again, we so often think of peace as this absence of conflict, this place of ease and comfort. But maybe, maybe peace, the kind of peace that Jesus exhibited, is the kind of peace that's simply able to greet whatever it is that's right in front of it. Hello, to the fear of seeing Jesus go through incredible suffering and being afraid that it's going to happen to you. Hello to being in a locked room with your fear. Hello to the one who miraculously shows up in your midst. Hello to joy. Hello to being forgiven. Hello to forgiving others. Hello to the difficulty of forgiving those who have left prominent scars on our minds and on our bodies. Hello to doubt. Hello to the new beginning of every day. And every hour. And yes, even every minute. Yeah, maybe, maybe peace is less about the absence of conflict. Maybe, maybe, maybe peace is truly about the pursuit of wholeness and redemption and restoration and reconciliation. And, and that coming by being attentive to that thing that is right in front of us. Whatever it might be. And whatever it might raise up in us. Hello to conflict. Hello to happiness. Hello to really uncomfortable conversations. Hello to justice. Hello to friends. 
if I'm being completely honest with you, uh, this is not how I live my life. I live my life much too low, or much too fast to say hello to these things, hello to busyness, right? And the busyness doesn't result in peace in me. Instead, the busyness that is, that is in, I don't even know, it's like not even in my heart, it's just, it's just, it's like, in my nature, it's wrapped up in who I am. This busyness is, is, it results in an unsettledness, but it's also this thing that measures my worth by my productivity. And so my, my great hope for this summer, for, for me personally, is that I can leave behind the impulse to do something, to have to accomplish something, to have to have something to which I can give an account for my time and show that I spent my time well. But instead, I hope and I pray that I can simply learn how to say hello. Hello to God at work in me. Hello to God at work in the world. Now, one of the ways that I'm going to do that this summer is I'm going to incorporate, I mean, there's a lot of different things we're going to do, but this is just one, is I'm going to practice, uh, practice the practice. I'm going to practice the examine. So the examine is an ancient spirit, it's an ancient practice in which what it'll look like for me is at the end of the day is I'll just sit there with my journal and I'll recount where I've seen God at work during that day. Whether it's taking a walk in the woods or whether it's a conversation that Sarah and I have or a conversation that happens with friends or something that I see with my kids or something that it just happens in my backyard or a thought that comes into my mind, but just to recount and note where is God at work in my life and in the world around me. It really will be a time at the end of the day in which I say, hello, God. And then to examine my response to those moments. Like, did I see it? Did I see it in the moment? Or is it only when I'm reflecting on it that I can go, oh, yeah, 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 no, no, I think that was God right there. I think God showed up in this way. Or am I present to it in the moment such that when it's happening, my heart is overwhelming because I'm like, right now, new creation is, like, this is the minute at which this unique beginning is happening. And if I missed it, why did I miss it? Was I distracted with something? Was I concerned about something? Was I feeling anxious that I've now going on four weeks of doing nothing? And I know that sounds great, but it actually terrifies me just a little bit. Like, am I distracted? Am I worried? Am I concerned? Am I just not paying attention? Why did I miss the opportunity to say hello to that thing at that time? I'll celebrate what was good during the day, and I'll confess those moments where I fall short from reflecting the characteristics of Christ. This is the exam, and this is what I'm going to do every single night. It will be my hello to the day. Hello to God. Hello to what is good. Hello to the beautiful. Hello to the grace that always forgives. And maybe in this, I'll grow in the peace of Jesus. Maybe I won't be feel so compelled to produce. Maybe I won't be compelled or driven by the tyranny of the urgent. 
Maybe you'll be a bit more present with Sarah and the kids. Maybe I'll see something. Something I would have otherwise missed and in that moment get to see the good work of God at work in the world. My hope and my prayer is that this kind of attentiveness and this kind of peace wouldn't be just something that I get to experience, but it's also something that we get to experience together as individuals and corporate. The kind of peace that simply greets what's right in front of us, accepts it as it is, and trusts that God shows up in that place. Here's why I'm so taken by this idea of just simply saying hello to the here. I don't think I'm far off in saying this, but I think that the majority of us spend so much of our lives wishing we were somewhere else. I wish I was in a different kind of situation in which I didn't have to deal with these people. I wish my kids were just a little bit older so they would sleep through the night. I wish I had more money so that I could do X, Y, or Z. I wish that this conflict wasn't out at present in my life. I wish this uncertainty wasn't here. I wish, right, you can just fill in the blank. We're always wishing that we're somewhere else. And that's not a peaceful way of living. And peace isn't the absence of those uncertainties and those questions and those positions and those difficulties and those trials that we face. Peace is the ability to take them at face value and simply say, hello. And so my hope is that we would gain that. And that from perhaps starting now, and, and, and there's, you know, the natural thing is from now until September 1st. But no, 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 no. From now until the rest of our lives, May we come to the place where we say hello. And for this season, hello to renewal and new things. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe through the Holy Spirit, you are present among us. Where two or three are gathered, you tell us you're there. And so, hello. Hello to the one who is among us. Hello to the one who walked out of the tomb. Hello to the one who is making all things new. We welcome you in our midst. And we confess, as Thomas did, that you are our Lord and our God. May we be a people who hear the words that you spoke to the disciples. Peace be with you. And may your peace truly be with us as we live into the hope and the reality of the resurrection. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.